You're listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM, a show that connects MIT to the world. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill. Came floating on a jasmine wind From the west, from the south Honey in my ears, spice in my mouth Dark and thrilling, strange and sweet Cleopatra called Omar Sharif, which is from the soundtrack for the Broadway show The Band's Visit. In 2018, the show won a slew of Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Original Score, Best Actor, and Best Actress. It also won Best Orchestration, which was awarded to Jamshid Sharifi, an Iranian-American composer and MIT alum. Sharifi received his degree in humanities at MIT, then went on to study at Berklee College of Music. Before the band's visit, he scored multiple films, recorded his own albums, and produced and arranged for other musicians and bands. MIT Israel, Arts at MIT, and MIT Hillel organized this event with Sharifi that you will hear in just a minute. During this special virtual event, he talked about what it was like working on the Broadway hit, incorporating Middle Eastern influences to his music, and how his MIT degree continues to be relevant as a musician. So take a listen. Here's Jamshid Sharifi. An interesting thing about musicals is that they are they're usually rehearsed with just a pianist, sometimes a pianist and one other musician member. If it's a very rhythmic score, it might be a pianist and a percussionist or a pianist and a drummer. Um, and the musicians tend to come late in the game, really in the last couple of weeks of rehearsal. Uh, and this is a financial consideration because the production does not want to be paying uh, an orchestra, however many people it is. In the case of the band's visit, it was nine, but but in you know in something like um, South Pacific, it's thirty-two people. It's a, it's a lot of numbers to be paying, especially because musicians are trained to learn this material very quickly. 
um, the, everything's written out for them. So they're playing a written score and you know there may only be a few days of rehearsal. That said, there was, there's always a lot of interaction between the actors and the pianist who is usually the music director of the show. So when rehearsals begin with the full band, the pianist knows really everything about the actors that are singing the songs, all of their quirks, all of the things that they need for say entrance, uh, their preferred tempos. Um, usually by this time, keys have been decided on, but um, any quirks that they want, you know, m most of theater is, is not done to a click. It's not done to a regimented, I should say musical theater. It's not done to a click or regimented tempo. There's a lot of flow and learning to play those songs effectively requires that the music director know exactly how the actor is going to take it. And of course it varies from night to night, but the, you know, there'll be dramatic pauses. How long are those pauses? How does the actor pick, pick up into that? That happens between the, the pianist music director and the actors over the entire rehearsal process. So when the musicians enter the fray, all of that information is conveyed to them by the music director. Um, and then as the show develops, there does tend to be a fair amount of interaction between the musicians and the actors as they get to know each other. Um, the band's visit had one peculiarity which you don't often see in a musical, and that was that one of the musicians was one of the actors. Um, he came into the show auditioning as an actor for the row of Kamal, um, a kind of wry, cynical member of the Egyptian police orchestra, and then offhandedly said, well, you know, I've studied Arabic music when I was a kid, and he picks up a violin and plays, and he's just a badass, pardon the expression. He's just a phenomenal Arabic violinist. And he says, and I play oud and, and I sing and I play percussion. <laughs> like many Arab musicians, um, you don't really necessarily specialize in a single instrument. You learn the whole orchestra. So when we heard his audition as an actor, we were like, we want him for the band. Um, so that he was always part of the deal and always a connection. Uh, and I think that opened up a greater connection between the musicians and the actors. The other thing was uh, both David Yazbek and David Cromer wanted to preserve the sense from the film that the Egyptian orchestra was part of the action. So four of our musicians, including um, the uh, the actor playing Kamal, um, are on stage for much of the action. And they they don't have any lines aside from Kamal, but they are present, they are, you know, they have blocking, they move from place to place. Sometimes you'll see them just sitting in a corner having a little jam session. Um, it made, it was a very technically complicated to pull this off because some of the times they had to play down in the pit in the basement, some of the times they had to play on stage. So they had two different monitor mixes and two sets of monitoring tools. And there would be some very tight changes where they'd be running downstairs to get into their seats for the next queue. Um, but uh, but it, it brought something magical to the show to have more of the music visible and present, um, you know, to see, oh, that music that I'm hearing out of the speakers is actually coming from somebody's fingers. That, okay, I see his fingers on the fingerboard. I see the bow on the strings. Um, it's, it's, it's something interestingly in, in many musical discussions about musicals since that time, I've heard a lot of people wanting to incorporate that into their own show. And it's certainly not the first time it's been done. I saw a wonderful production of Fiddler on the Roof in which the musicians were on stage the entire time. But here they were, they were really characters in the show. They're, you know, they're wearing the same light blue uh, as they said, Michael Jackson's suit as the rest of the actors um, and wandering around and being a part of things. So, yeah, sorry, that was the long answer. The short answer is yes, there, there is a fair amount of interaction, but it's, you know, it's filtered in different ways. Thank you. Another question came through. Have you spent uh, any time in Israel and would you like to see the band's visit performed in Israel and in the Arab world? And how do you think it might be received in each of those places? Um, 
Well, sadly, I have not had a chance to go to Israel. I was, I had a tour planned with a friend of mine, Ellie Zach from school who plays guitar and, and um, had performances in Tel Aviv and at um, Elat down on the Red Sea. And I, at that time, got my first TV commercial. So I made, unfortunately, a financial decision to take that. And it turned out to be very lucrative um, and it was worth it, but I missed going to Israel. I, I would love to see the bands visit in Israel and in the Arab world, um, in particular because of the, the way it does not address Arab-Israeli conflicts head on, but lets them play out in the background in the very human interactions, interactions between the characters. Um, one of the strongest things in the film is the leader of the orchestra dismissively saying that to the, you know, the leading woman, uh, Dina, who runs a cafe in Beta Tikva, um, that, oh, she wouldn't be interested in the music that we play. Uh, you know, it's classical Arab music. It's a music of Um Kultum. And, and she says, I love Um Kultum. I grew up listening to her and watching Egyptian movies on the TV. And I'm crazy about Omar Sharif. And she sings this beautiful song about uh, Um Kultum and Omar Sharif. And it's, it, it's such a wonderful way of getting past the, the brutality and the ugliness of the political conflict and saying, we're connected through music, through soul, through the things that speak to us. Um, so I think it would be, I, I, it would be fantastic to see it performed both in Israel and in the Arab world. Can you tell us a bit about how the musical score incorporates uh, uh, Arabic scales, harmony, and rhythm with some of the more traditional uh, Broadway music? Well, the the composition, as I said, you know, the score is composed by David. Although I did give him some, you know, really minimal advice at the outside, just uh, guidance as scales that I thought would be useful or or you know, particular ways that I dealt with melody. Um, I for me, I think David walked the line perfectly. I think the songs, I, I mean, in particular, the song Um Kultum has become a very popular audition song for musical theater singers all over the world, which, it, which means there's, there's something truly musical theater about it. Um, and yet it does, you know, it does convey the, the magic of Egyptian film and the, the beauty of Um Kultum singing. Um, how did that happen? Uh, I, I mean, partly David was listening to a lot of Arabic music in particular, because this is supposed to be an Arabic orchestra. Um, I remember sending him a lot of uh, uh, rhythm tracks from my own films and records saying here, you know, try writing something to this. Um, a lot of things in 6A, a lot of things featuring Darbuka, um, things that are not based around the drum set. And um, having though, you know, starting with those tools, I think guided him to a score that was a little bit off, well, more than a little bit off of the norm of, of Broadway. Um, and you know, I should also mention that our uh, our actor playing violin was a wonderful influence because he studied the real deal as a child. His whole family would, were musicians um, and, you know, and performers of Arabic music, so. So it's interesting that you described yourself as Persian as opposed ah. to Iranian. Um, I know that that's how Jews from uh, Iran or uh, Iranian uh, origins refer to themselves as well, in part as a way to separate themselves um, as part of an ancient culture of coexistence from the current image of the Iranian state. It's also inspired cultural creation in Israel and music, theater, cinema, and even television. Um, 
how does this identity structure play a role in your creation? Well, well, you know, growing up, I think we used the terms Persian and Iranian interchangeably. Um, although most Persian Jews I know do prefer the term Persian. Um, the, hmm, I, I mean, you know, I, I obviously have a lot of problems with the current regime and, and this has been a ongoing tension in Iran for really 1300 years. Uh, Iranians have this view of themselves that their culture goes back 2,500 years. You know, that, that the height of our culture was when the Persian ex empire extended uh, all over the map. And these Muslims, they're Johnny come latelys that have come tried to impose their culture on us. And the history of Iran really from that time is an oscillation between periods of religiosity and periods of, uh, you know, celebrating the uniquely Persian or Iranian culture. And I think we're just in one of those religious periods. Obviously the time prior to this, the, the Shah was, I mean, the, the Shah changed the calendar to 2,500, right? Uh, it had been on the Islamic calendar and he says, nope, we're, we're going back to the height of the Persian empire. So for a while I had a birth certificate that said I was 1,200 years old. Um, but so, so I, you know, I'm ever hopeful that the, the, the worst instincts of the Islamic government will tend to fade away and the, the sense of the Iranian people will return to, to incorporating their older history. But the fact is a lot of young people are leaving, um, my entire, in my family, everyone in my generation lives outside of the country because they don't currently see a future for themselves there. Um, either economically or personally, there's not really, you know, a chance for public life. Um, it's, it, 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 I mean, we know in this past year what it's like to live with pandemic and be shut in. And that's really what life is like, is, has been in Iran since 1979. So if you can imagine a 41 year pandemic, that's, that's why the young people are leaving. Um, but, you know, I still feel very much connected to the place, um, to its physical beauty, to its culture, to the food. Um, it's, you know, it's a kind of ache that I think all expatriate Persians carry. And I'm technically, I'm an, I'm an American, I grew up here, but uh, there's a part of me that feels to be an expat Iranian because I can't really go back there. Um, you know, it's, uh, at least my dad won't, he, he won't let me. <laughs> so anyway. Um, it's amazing, you know, as you describe the fact that like, it is your heritage, it is, and yet you can't go back there. Um, mm. And you're able to take some of that and put it into the music, put it into your career. Um, there were a couple questions about, you know, advice for others. One was, what advice and resources for singers or composers do you have would like to, and I'm gonna go in two ways, incorporate their heritage into their musical career, and in particular for incorporating Middle Eastern and world music into anyone's career who's a singer or a composer? Well, my, my own feeling is, you kind of marinate in it and soak in it as much as you can. And then it will become a part of what you do. Um, it's, uh, you know, it is possible say to listen to pieces of say particular cultures, music, transcribe them, learn to play them. And, and, you know, in an intellectual way, bring those elements into music that you're composing. Um, but I think it, it is most effective when, when it's more a process of stewing and, and sitting on it for a while. So what that means to me is a lot of listening, a lot of seeking out and, and, and finding that music that speaks to you and getting it in your ear and hearing it over and over again, hearing the phrasing, hearing the, it, it's a lot like learning a language. I mean, it's very much learning a language. Um, you're not just trying to learn the words, 
you're trying to learn the accents, the way the words are spoken, the way the words are put together. Um, and that to say incorporate Persian music into what you're doing or incorporate um, really any culture's music that takes time and repeated exposure. I do think also you should transcribe um, and I think you should take what opportunities you can to study with someone who's better at it than you. It doesn't even have to be a master, just someone who's walked a little bit of that path and can instruct you on what to bring in, what to seek. Um, one thing that's very helpful, and, and I found very interesting, uh, you know, I was, I'm a keyboard player. I played piano my whole life and I'm, because of my interest in synthesis, I've, I've been a, a, a real advocate of playing the synthesizer in an expressive way. And when I was trying to learn Persian and Middle Eastern music, I would try to adapt it to the synthesizer, which is not a natural fit. Um, and I had some fair amount of success doing that. But what really kind of sunk it into my head in a whole different way was someone giving me a sitar. That's not the Indian sitar, but the Persian sitar, uh, a small three-string lute. And uh, just, you know, touching it, playing it, um, getting my hands on it. Uh, I mean, it, it has a voice that is from that music. And it, the, the instrument itself guides you to making that music. I remember in music school, uh, a keyboard friend of, player friend of mine was talking to a sax player friend of mine, a tenor saxophone player. He says, man, you guys that play saxophone, you have it so easy. You just wiggle your fingers and out comes jazz. Um, and you know what he was saying is saxophone is an instrument that is so associated with jazz that when you start playing it, you start hearing jazz. And when I picked up the sitar, I was like, God, I just wiggle my fingers and out comes Persian music. So if there is a draw to, to, you know, to bring a culture's music into your own music, I think one of the most effective ways is to study one of those instruments. You know, so if you were an Arabic musician, you, I mean, if you wanted to study Arabic music, you might play kanun or oud. Um, or if you wanted to play West African music, then you probably play djembe. Um, because the, those instruments were developed in concert with the musics. Um, they, 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 they speak the language of that music. Um, and the instrument will help you find that more strongly. There was another question actually about music and someone was uh, wondering whether Arab music reflects the rhythm and cadence of the Arab language. Hmm. That, I don't think I could speak accurately on. Um, I mean, when I think of Arab rhythm, uh, the, it's, I mean, so many of the rhythms that I, that I remember and know are in six, which, um, you know, makes them different than what we think of as Western rhythm, which is very often in four, not always, but, but, uh, you know, if you turn on the radio, you're 95% of the songs you hear are going to be in four, four. So just from the numerical perspective, it, it is different. Um, it's uh, six, eight rhythms, which are, as I said, common in Arabic music tend to be really dance oriented driving. Um, they, I would say there's a reflection of, of Arabic personality in the rhythm. Um, I don't know if it's matched the speech though, uh, but you know, probably someone has written paper on this and I wouldn't be surprised if the answer is yes. A very MIT question now. Oh. Deciding to apply to and matriculate at MIT, were you ever on a science track? You said that your father was a chemist. I was course five when I was in grad school at MIT. Right. Did you consider the sciences or engineering or did you foresee music as a viable option at MIT even before you got here? Um, and I then once you were at MIT, how much science did you actually pursue before graduating in humanities? My initial plan was to, to do uh, computer science. Um, and, but w within a year, my 
uh, my friend Shlomo, who had guided me to MIT, my high school friend, uh, told me about this program offered by the humanities department called Option 2. I don't think it exists anymore, but it did at the time. And it basically allowed you to make up your own major. I want to thank the programs and organizations that were able to put this event with Jamshid Sharifi together, MIT Israel, Arts at MIT, and MIT Hillel. Be sure to listen to the band's visit original Broadway cast recording to hear more of Sharifi's orchestrations. Here's the song, Death No More, by Russian experimental duo Ice Peak. Thank you. 
too loud and the noise from the crowd increases the chance of misinterpretation. So let your hips do the talking. Smile by really getting into the swing, 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 getting into the swing,
You just heard Ponta de Area by Esperanza Spalding. And before that was I'd Rather Dance With You by British band Kings of Convenience. For the last part of the show, I want to share with you all an interview I did with our very own Candy DeBlay, the new MIT France program manager at MISTI. France is just one of the many countries that we send MIT students, but it's a unique place for cultural experiences and internships. I spoke with Candy about what it was like living abroad in France and the advancing industries there that might be appealing to MIT students. Okay, so Candy DeBlay, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be I, here. Yeah, I want to kind of get into, you know, what have you been doing before, Misty? What you brought you what brought you here? And so let's get into um, your background. Uh, what were you doing before you came to Misty? So before I came to Misty, I was an international student in scholar services at a state school in Pennsylvania. Uh, where I was working mainly with international exchange students and Fulbright scholars. Um, Before that, I had always been in France. How long were you in France? I was there for about 13 years, and I worked in international education for about nine of those. Uh, Did you come there to work in international education? No, I actually went just to go teach English for a year, and that year turned into two years, and then I ended up being recruited for the position that I that I held there, um, where I worked at the same time with incoming international students, as well as French students that were going on study abroad. So what was that like, uh, living in a different country? And I'm sure you got pretty used to it after after a while. Um, after a while, yeah. I mean, there's always a big culture shock for, for France. I had also lived in Belgium before, so I was more or less prepared for it. Um, it's really just the the French way of doing things that is most challenging to get used to. Um, it's 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 different than what we know in the states. Um, but once I adapted to the way that they communicate um, and work every day in a in an academic environment, I just feel like it was probably just normal everyday life. Um, I also did quite a bit of traveling for that position, so that was also interesting. Recruiting students to come to France and selling them on why they should come to France also. Um, it was pretty fun. Were there any examples that you can share about those cultural differences that you had to adapt to? Sure. Um, for example, here in America, if you smile at someone, it can be construed as a hello or something friendly. Um, in France, if you smile at someone, they're going to think that you might be a little crazy. Um, and it definitely does not replace the hello. You actually need to verbally express that. Otherwise, you're considered to be quite rude. So um, that would be probably first and foremost what comes to mind. Okay, yeah, that's really, really good to know. <laughs> uh, and did you speak French fluently before you arrived there? Or, or did you get better at speaking the language when you lived there? Um, I did. I had previously lived in Belgium as an exchange student. And then I was a translator in Quebec City for my own internship um, during my undergraduate studies. So I was lucky that I did speak French. Uh, already upon arrival. So that made my life so much easier. So you came from France and now you're here at MIT as the MIT French program manager. Uh, What's the day-to-day work looking like for you? Um, For the time being, it seems more theoretical due to the pandemic um, since we're not sending students um, abroad right now. So um, when things get back to normal though, I hope to to be able to match students with in-person internships that will benefit them for their future careers. Um, I had someone that took a chance on me when I first started out, so I really feel like that's something I'd like to help students find their internship that will, you know, get their hopefully international career started too. That's at least that's what I hope it will look like. What are the particular industries that you know make France stand out as a place for students to explore? You know. What kind of places and, and fields do you want to place your students in? Um, they're, it's very diverse. I would say um, energy, technology, the automobile manufacturing industry, aerospace, industrial, and also nuclear power. Um, also the agricultural industry, especially including wine production. Um, fashion is also pretty big. So there's really a lot of different areas for students to choose from. So do you... What do you think is like the future of these industries? Like what's gonna grow, you know, what's gonna make France like the top leader of these uh, of these fields? 
Um, I'm not sure I have the exact answer to that question, but I think that there will be a lot of interesting things coming in the future. Um, there's a lot of investment going on right now, um, currently happening in research and development in most of the main industries. That's been a major initiative of the current French government. Um, so I think that one of the main things to watch out for will be innovation in the automobile sector um, and also robotics and artificial intelligence. Uh, so aside from the, um, the internship opportunities, what makes uh, France a unique place a great place for students to travel to through MISTI? Well, France as a whole is the most visited country in the world. They have close to 80 million foreign, 80 million foreign tourists a year, I think in a normal year, not a pandemic year, obviously. Um, so their academic and corporate environments are going to be quite different than from what we know here in the States. Uh, there are these unwritten cultural rules and just a host of different challenges. Um, just because it is an entirely different culture. Um, but I think with the right cross-cultural preparation, it can be an extremely rewarding and enriching experience. Um, if students can adapt to living and working there, um, I think that they can adapt to live and work anywhere. Um, and having that experience under their belts is just a great selling point for future employers. It has a lot to offer. Um, and although it can be challenging, if students can, you know, stick it out and um, really get to know the French people, they also have a lot to offer as well, especially in terms of culture and things like that. I did not know it was the most visited place in the mm -hmm. world. When you uh, start, you know, preparing students to go abroad, you know, hopefully soon, uh, what do you want their experience to look like and how do you want them to prepare? Well, I think that we shouldn't shy away from, you know, the challenges that will be there. Um, I want it to be a challenging, but at the same time, a rewarding experience for students. So um, one of the things that I'd like to focus on to prepare them is that they should make the most of their experience by getting to know their colleagues. Um, say, like coffee chat time in France is very important just to, to catch up with your coworkers after the weekend, um, things like that. Get to know their colleagues both inside and outside of the workplace, um, if at all possible. There are, I mean, there's lots of places to visit and there's fantastic museums and cultural experiences they can take advantage of too. The French have as a whole, I would say, mastered the art of slowing down and enjoying life. Um, I feel like that's a delicate balance and that's a skill that students can learn from and you know, carry with them long after their time in France has come to an end. Um, and I think that um, preparing students to, to work and integrate into French work life, um, having those conversations about the cultural differences that are there, um, they can be a bit scary at first, but also like that's what will pay off for the students once they, uh, once they get there and can, you know, nurture those relationships um, that will help them both inside and outside of their, you know, internship experience. Okay. Thank you so much, Candy. Misty Radio is a production of MIT International Science Technology Initiatives. It is edited by Amina Katoon. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
I know I keep on 
ça fait 15 ans que je te fais l'amour, tu me regardes toujours pas. Je te tourne autour, 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 mais tu ne me vois pas. Je parle pourtant la même langue, je la défends à tour de bras. De Tokyo à Portland, en passant par Barcelona. Je fais des efforts, j'explique bien, je suis sûrement inadapté. Quand je m'exporte, j'explique rien, j'ai pas besoin de m'expliquer. C'est peut-être là la vérité, tu te poses beaucoup de questions. Ou peut-être, peut-être pas assez, c'est moi qui suis vraiment Je sais que je suis pas 